Well, uh, if you have your Bible, you can uh, you just go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to get there. I wanted to start today um, sharing with you a message called The Familiar and the Future. Um, and, and before I get into the meat of this, message today, I want you to know in advance, this is actually going to be quite life-giving today. But I have to say thank you. Thank you to this church who has been praying for me and for my family over the last 10 days because of the sudden loss of my, my older brother, Ted Reaver, 62 years old. And um, I have to say personally that um, today is the culmination of a, of a journey I've been on. Yesterday, I um, was given the task by family um, to actually lead his celebration of life. My brother was a successful businessman, been in the insurance industry for years. Matter of fact, even had employees up here in Citrus County and was uh, an absolute life of the party. And, you know, there were so many people in the room who didn't know Christ who didn't know the hope that, that I had. And so I, I, I had to begin to pray and say, God, what, how do I connect with these people? And suddenly I be, begin to realize that what God was speaking to me in this moment of tremendous weight and pain was not only a message for the people that would be coming to the celebration of life, but had an application to our church. My brother, my older brother, was the kind of person that when he came into the room, he got all of the attention. I told the crowd yesterday I had to move two hours away and find my own microphone to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> that was my brother, 12 years my senior. And as a, a, a young man, this vivacious man in my eyes, kind of a hero sort of a figure, man, he was larger than life. I mean... The way he came out of high school was epic. Again, since he was always the center of attention and, and, and always drawing attention, he got suspended for something. But he decided that he was going to take his high school experience to a whole nother level. So he began his suspension between periods on his motorcycle, driving it through the hallways of Mulberry High School. And gladly, the administration ushered him in permanence to his future. 
don't come back, they said. So I kind of grew up hearing these stories about my older brother. And some of my earliest memories about my brother were actually him inviting me uh, to break the law. It's so true. He had this vehicle that today it's so strange. It, uh, only kind of car people will even know what this is. He had a Dodge A100. They called it a pickup. It, it looked more like a pound puppy. <laughs> Two things got tangled up that shouldn't have been together. The front half looked like a van. The back half was a bed. Van truck. And uh, this Dodge had uh, what was called three on the tree. Come on, only a couple people in here. All the young people are going to be like Googling, what is three on the tree? You would shift gears right on the steering column. While using the clutch and the gas, I was 12 years old. My brother's like, just drive it. I was like, not only can I not drive this, I've never driven anything. That was my introduction to driving. And I promise you, that day, I was grinding more than Starbucks. <laughs> That old van truck was a project, and my brother always had a project. Always. His life was, everything in his life was a project. It was, that project actually got uh, sold, and he got his next step up. A beautiful, in his eyes, Late 70s Corvette Stingray. No, no, no. You would have never said, ooh, if you had seen it. Uh, the Bondo and the gray spots and what used to be red faded sort of pink and, and, and headlights needing to be replaced and everything, the floor, I remember the floor pans needed to be replaced in this thing. When you rode, I, he took me for a ride in this vet, and I thought to myself, I am going to fall out the bottom and die. <laughs> but it didn't matter. My brother had his project. He was working on it and fixing it up, but, but then uh, uh, a slightly more refined, in need of less, 1982, White Corvette caught his eye, sold the old one, and did a few things on that one, and that was quite an upgrade. My brother, though, being this life of the party and knowing I, I, he had this passion now for cars, I got to work. 
So he took up the family business. He was working with my dad as a carpenter. He's working in that uh, arena, and he was like, man, this is not what I'm supposed to do. I, I'm, I'm meant for more than this. So he, he totally jettisoned the ironworking and, and carpentry and said, I'm going to use my gift of gab. I'm going into sales. He, he landed in insurance and started to build a business. But he was thinking, you know, maybe a Corvette isn't the right vehicle for this new kind of business, I've got to get a Mercedes. Keep up appearances. You remember those old Mercedes, the diesel ones? Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of like floating on air. And he had that one for some time. He always had a project. But his love for cars switched I don't know who he connected with, but suddenly his passion for vehicles kind of reached its limit, at least vehicles on land. Soon after purchasing that Mercedes, he would purchase his first boat, and oh, it looked a lot like that first Corvette. And uh, he decided that uh, he was going to take all of the resources that he could manipulate to get to work on this boat and pay them in hope. That was me. He said, this boat, we're going to paint it and gel it, but I need you to sand the whole boat. Oh, I didn't have a belt sander. I just had one of those vibrating sanders. <laughs> Young people, doesn't that sound like an exciting summer? <laughs> Under the dust. <laughs> and I actually uh, think um, he got his money's worth out of that job. He didn't pay me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, he would work on that boat and, and get it at least what he thought was seaworthy. Someone had taken him over and kind of exposed him to one of the best fishing spots in Florida, in Boca Grande. Boca Grande is an area that in the springtime will be filled with thousands of tarpon. It will also be filled with majestic boats back then. They, they didn't fish for tarpon back then the way they do. They had these enormous fishing boats. These vessels were enormous. That was the way you had to fish for tarpon like a king. And then there was boat number one. Ted with his little brother in tow. In this old boat that was hand-painted. But I was glad to be out on the water. This was a relatively new experience for me. I, wasn't, I, I didn't have a passion for ocean fishing at all. So there we are driving, and in Boca Grande Pass, the waters get narrow, and during the changing of the tides, the waves can become significant. And that day, not only was the tide strong, but the wind began to blow. And as we were headed into the pass, um, Ted's driving and we're working the waves and everything. He said, yeah, we'll be there in just a few moments. 
We can see the, the lighthouse that is there that people use as a marker to know exactly where they are. And we're headed there, and suddenly, click. The steering column breaks. He powers down, and he looks at me and says, throw the anchor. I'm like, okay. And I threw the anchor and tied it off. And my brother says, hey, don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to get under here and... I'll fix this somehow. So he climbed under the, you know, uh, under the, the steering column and he is under there and the waves are kicking up and the wind is blowing. And I thought to myself, I am completely wasting my time. I am of no use to him, so I'm going fishing. And suddenly, as if I were Peter, uh, uh, you know, with Jesus on the shore, I drop in the first bait. It barely hits the bottom. I reel up and, ooh, I am on. And it's been over and I'm reeling and reeling. I had hit, I mean, there must have been hundreds and hundreds of caravel jack that now have just come. I reel one up. I pull it in the boat. It flips off the hook for me, hits the ground of the boat, and flops over to my brother as he's working on the steering. I looked and said, that's as good a spot as any. I put the bay back on. Before I, know, I had four fish in the boat, all of them beating my brother as he's trying <laughs> to fix the steering. He liked the project. He would later get it fixed. Somehow we would make our way to Kea Costa Key and spend the night and his fishing trip was cut short, but mine was very successful. <laughs> um, yeah, he was always working on a project, and it always led to some kind of story. He wasn't just uh, in the insurance industry. He learned that not only did he have an ability to sell, he could actually speak. He'd be useful in that arena, which led him to a microphone in an arena. Became the in-house announcer for the Lakeland Ice Warriors, who would later become the semi-pro hockey team of the Lakeland Prowlers. And I was so excited. My brother is an announcer for a semi-pro hockey team. Believe it or not, I've got the craziest stories. You think stories, my stories have been crazy my whole life. I met this team and met Wayne Gretzky's younger brother, Brent Gretzky. I met him there, you know, hanging out with the team. And one day I went to Wendy's and there's Brent Gretzky and nobody knows who he was. He had been walking from the hotel 
I picked him up, gave him a ride. I'm like, this is awesome. My brother is a superstar. And he said, hey, here's what I want to do for you. I want to give you and your friends tickets to come to the game. I'm like, yeah, how many? I'll I'll give you four tickets. Bring your friends. Man, you'll have great seats and all the rest. I'm like, okay, great. We go to Will Call. There There are the tickets we go in. And my brother, his job is to announce not only penalties and and changes in time and all of the rest, but local businesses would place ads with the Lakeland Ice Warriors so that they could advertise to the 8,000 or so people who were there in attendance at the Lakeland Civic Center, what it was called at the time, now the Lakeland Center. And we're sitting there, and we're like just starting. I said, man, this is awesome. Isn't this cool? I see my brother. He's announcing this is so cool. You can hear him you know, leading this whole procession, and there's a timeout, and there's a change, and now is the time for my brother to give one of those commercials. And there I am with my friends and full full center, full place of people who've come to enjoy a fight and watch a hockey game break out, you know, and um, that's really what happened. That was, a, that's, that's what that, that league was all about. It was just fighting on skates, and sometimes they'd play hockey. And he gets on his microphone, and he called me by my nickname. He said, Adi, does your shirt look like you slept in it? Well, then bring it down to Trim and Tidy Dry Cleaners. (laughs) Right there on South Florida Avenue for all your dry cleaning needs. And my friends are like, ah! And my brother's pointing at me from the booth, and I'm like this is why he was being nice to me (laughs) to embarrass me in front of thousands of people. I found out at the celebration of life that I wasn't the only one that he pulled that little trick on. Um, He had all kinds of influence and voices, people who would preach the gospel to him. And had quite an encounter with God as a young man. And somebody believed in him so much, they bought him a study Bible. And he he had read it and kept it for for years, but had this little house, and now his family was getting bigger. He was going to have to take a carport and make it a room on the house. He was pretty good with his hands. And again, everything he owned was a project. He was there building it, and I came over. I was probably at this time 14 or 15. God was doing something in my life, but I didn't really know it. I came in looking at this new drywall, this whole new room. Everything looked different, but I recognized this closet that I used to walk past. The new drywall being there resurfaced, and I opened the door of that closet, looked around on the inside, looked down on the floor, and there on the floor was a study Bible. I looked at it. And I could see 
that because of the renovation, drywall mud had fallen on this Bible and actually sealed it shut. I picked up that Bible, and honestly, I'd never seen a Bible so big. After all, as a young man, I had been baptized and given one of those little blue baptism Bibles that are commonly given away. But this one was different. Sealed shut by drywall mud. I went to, to Ted and I, I, I took this, this Bible to him and I said, Hey, Ted, I um, found this in the closet. He goes, Oh, yeah. That's a study Bible. I think he could hear in my voice a sense of longing, desire. I said, what are you going to do with it? And much in the way that he had treated almost every other thing, he said something to me. He said, if you'll agree to restore it, I'll give it to you. I said, I'll restore it. I'll do that. For those who know study Bibles who've been out for a while, it was a Dakes annotated study Bible. A man who gave 40-some years of his life to pouring over the scriptures and seeing deep revelations from within, powerful I took water and ever so gently over time removed that drywall mud, freed every page, and that Bible would be the greatest gift my brother ever gave me. It would serve as a backdrop for discipleship, seeing thousands of kids. Much of what I had learned about God and the Holy Spirit had come from those pages of a Bible that was kind of buried in a project. Not only were houses and cars and boats a project, but every person to Ted, I think, was a project. Every person was a project. Here's why. He had advice at all times, even when you didn't want it. Come on, you know anybody like that? If you don't. But much of that advice was really good. Matter of fact, I met a man who Ted befriended in a parking garage. After being in the insurance industry and being around people who had surgeries and in and out of hospitals so much, he, he was handed a ticket by a man for parking. And he, when he grabbed the ticket, he grabbed the man's hand. He says, I noticed something looks a little off by your, at your bicep. Something doesn't look right. He goes, you should have that checked out. There's a really good doctor. Go and see him. That man shook my hand and he said, 
I didn't know it. But Ted saw a torn ligament passing by. He goes, years would follow in friendship after he helped me to restore movement. Every person was a project. And when someone that like that suddenly leaves the planet and their influence goes away, you're like, wow, what is our family going to be like? What is his family going to be like? And I begin to think, uh, God, how do I go into this place and share something meaningful with all of these people who most of which will come from a business background, not a church background. It would just simply be from the community. What do I say? And I, I begin to watch and notice what God was doing in me as he was speaking a message to me. I noticed that God wasn't only giving me a message that would be for the listeners at this celebration of life, but it was actually a message to us here at Calvary. That there were lessons that we could take from this moment of trauma and weightiness and brokenness that God says, hey, by the way, I want to use this moment of pain to reveal my purpose. So I just asked the Lord, Lord, uh, you know, Ted was always giving advice. Is there a scripture that would kind of mirror what Ted would say to the people who are in attendance? And immediately one came to mind, and it was it's a familiar one. So 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. This is a moment where the Apostle Paul is looking at a spiritual son, knowing that his days on the earth are are coming to a close. He is saying some of the most important words of that anyone could hear in a moment of transition. As he's making declarations about himself, he is also in those declarations giving us direction for those who would press on. And I want you today to hear these words as we as a church stand on the precipice of moving into the future that God has for us, you need to hear these words. I think it not strange that I would uh, go through a heavy season personally while looking forward to quite possibly the greatest season in the history of our church. These words begin to echo in my spirit. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me also, but also to those who loved, or another way of saying it in the Greek, or longed for his appearing. I begin to think, okay, 
The Apostle Paul is not only making a declaration of self, but he is saying something to his spiritual son, the one who will remain, something that he can use as instruction to carry on out of a moment of loss and pain. Because the Apostle Paul says, listen, for me to live, it's Christ. For me to die is to get more Christ, is to gain. He goes, I'm moving on. What did he say here? Let's look at it. Uh, let's look at it. It says, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. I think a lot of believers don't even know they're in a fight. Except on Facebook. It doesn't just say fight. It says fight the good fight. I think we're really good at fighting terrible fights. We fight over things that don't matter. I promise you stand in moments like I've stood in in the last 10 days and you will wonder whether the words spoken were worth it. Whether the words that you have shared, was the fight, was the differences, was the tension, was it worth it? Listen, we as the church need to be this light in a world all it knows how to do is fight. And they're fighting the wrong fight. And by the way, the enemy wants you fighting the wrong fight. You may actually be fighting and feeling like you're fighting a battle for God. God doesn't need you to fight a battle for him. He's big enough and has never lost a battle. I'm here to announce to you, you are called to fight the good fight. Do you even know what the good fight is? Do you even have a clue in your life what the good fight is? Oh, is it, is it this cause or is it that cause? No, it is not. We let Scripture interpret Scripture and we find it in Paul's first letter to Timothy, how to fight a good fight. 1 Timothy 1, it's not in your notes, but you should look it up. It's really good, and somehow or another, I have separated myself from these. Uh, get it. First Timothy chapter 1, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. You want to know how to what the good fight is? It is where you fight for God's call on your life. Where you fight to possess everything that God says is yours as a son or a daughter of God. You may, as a byproduct, bring social change, but church, listen to me. Your main fight needs to be the good fight. That fight which you war over, that you would dare to listen to the whispered words of prophetic prophetic utterance. By the way, if you've never gotten a prophetic word, I would fill this altar and come to this altar team. They're super prophetic. They'll give you a word from God. You ever gotten a word from God and had to fight for it? 
God said, I'm going to take you here, and it seemed like all kinds of things came against you. There will be all kinds of opposition to your purpose in your life. Don't give in to any of it. Fight the good fight. Fight for who God says you're to be, that you're a son, a daughter, that you're forgiven and free and overcomer, that you're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You need to believe what God has said for you and fight for who he said you are. Fight the good fight. Secondly, he says here, finish your race. He said, I have finished my race. So in a sense, he was saying to his son, now you finish yours. You finish yours. The apostles Paul says with confidence, I'm going to heaven and I know that I will cross that eternal line knowing I ran my race. Oh, church, we need to be a people who aren't trying to be like any pastor we see on television. Uh, uh, For God's sake, don't try to be like me. Why don't you turn your eyes to Jesus and run the race that he has marked out for you, forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, church. Don't run someone else's race. You won't be judged by that. Oh, if there is a day before heaven when believers stand before the Bema seat of Christ, I think the call will go out and it will go something like this. I call Bob the preacher. And a man will ebb his way through the crowd. Um, God, I, I know you've never gotten it wrong before, but I'm, I'm Bob the accountant. Church, did you know that you're, you will not be judged only by what you did, but what you were called to do? You see, the Bible says that all of your days are written in books in heaven. Your prayer life from time to time ought to go, God, it's story time. Could you grab my book? I'm going to get right here in your presence. Just read me another chapter, and that's the life I want to live. Oh, God, don't leave out any detail because the life you have for me is the life I want to live for the glory of the Son of God. Your days are written in heaven. Your father has them all written out and he will speak to you. Finish your race. You may have had detours. You may have been derailed. There may have been all kinds of problems, but I can assure you that God will turn your pain into purpose. Run your race. Finish your race. I've read this book. Here's the key to everything. If you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. Why? 
Because God has made us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I'm not giving up on my faith. I'm holding on to Jesus. I'm going to run my race even if the path goes over mountain high and goes through valley low. That's why Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God didn't start me on this race to somehow bring me into a trauma that stops it. And yet this is where many believers find themselves. Needing the encouragement of a father who's going away saying, finish your race. He goes, I'll be gone. Don't let the weightiness of what you're going through keep you from God's purpose. Don't let it stop you. That's why he said, finish. I'm finishing. You finish. And then he says this, I have kept the faith. This isn't what culture has taught us. That keeping your faith means, I mean, after all, when you share your faith with a co-worker, like I met a couple of, uh, of gentlemen who for years have prayed for my brother, even when he was facing down leukemia and overcoming it. I, I talked to a man who went to the room and had laid hands on him and prayed for him regularly and who said to my brother, because my brother was always boasting uh, about me, saying things that... I, you know, I, I don't think are true. He said, my brother has a photographic memory. He can, he can, uh, he can read something one time and then he can utter it and say it. He goes, it is absolutely amazing. I'm like, yeah, don't believe that. But I found out that Ronnie would take gifts and go up and say, Ted, your only hope is God. And he goes, you've got an assembly of God brother who's a preacher? And Ronnie would push him and say, what's wrong with you? He was the son of a church of God pastor ministering to him for years, partnering with him in business. Keep your faith doesn't mean keep it to yourself. It means to treasure your faith, that you carry something of worth for the world around you. I have kept the faith. I have treasured my faith in God. And this is what he is saying. And when I depart from this planet, Timothy, you will need to treasure your faith in God as well. Because you will go from being spiritual son to spiritual father. Are you ready for that transition? Are you ready for the one who, who was your covering to enter into their reward? And you now step into your purpose. He goes, the way you'll do it is keeping your faith real, alive, vibrant, front and center. I keep my faith. Hebrews 10.35 says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Or you will have, for you will have need of endurance, 
so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Oh, I wish somebody understood the greatness of what this is. He said, do not cast away your confidence. Don't cast away your faith in God because you hit a bump in the road, because you experience loss or even death or some kind of pain or a divorce, a relationship, a business betrayal. Don't give up. Here's what you do. Grab hold of your faith in a God who is good, who will never leave you, never forsake you, and say, I'm going to keep going because my faith in God will lead to an endurance. I'm going to make it because I serve a God who will carry me every step of the way. And listen, church, listen to me. Hear me clearly. If we're going to step into the things that God has for us in the coming days, reach for projects like this county has not seen. We're going to need some people who fight the good fight. We're going to have to be a unified people who fight for what God has said about this house. That this will be a regional center of awakening. That this place will be a well of healing to this region where people come and drink and are healed spiritually, physically, and mentally. We are going to contend that this place will be a lighthouse to this region. That under-equipped pastors will come and get renewed in the presence of God. Go back out and pastor houses and pastor people in a way that leads them into life in Christ. Listen to me. We are going to fight for the destiny that is on this house. We got to fight the good fight. And we've got to finish. It probably won't be over in a day. We've got to finish. Many who have gone before us, great heroes of mine, have graduated while we were covered in their intercession for years. They've gone on. But here's what I know. They finished their race. And God is calling us as a people to finish ours. And here will be the key. Enduring to the end will be because we have faith in God. That the gospel still works. The good news still changes people's lives. The cross is still enough. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is enough to take a quiet, timid young man and set him before thousands of students and see campus revival erupt for years and years. Listen, I'm telling you, there is a move of God, but you've got to keep your faith. Treasure it. I fear... Though, that in this place today, your life looks a little like that Bible I found in that renovation. Sealed shut. 
drippings of circumstance. And God says, I want to mend you. I want to clean you. And I want to bring 